Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Hey everyone, quick exciting note. This year is the 20th anniversary of Bitch. We've been publishing feminist perspectives on pop culture since 1996. Woohoo! <laughs> the next episode of Back Talk is going to be a special 20th anniversary edition. We want to include your voice on that episode. So here's the question. What was your first bitch? Do you remember when you first found the magazine or when you read an article online that changed your life or when you listened to the podcast maybe for the first time? What was your first bitch? Email me your reflections at Sarah, that's Sarah with an H, at bword.org. You can also record a voice memo if that's more your style, but just email me at Sarah at bword.org. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to Back Talk. This is the feminist pop culture show with myself. I'm the contributing editor, <laughs> Amy Lamb. <laughs> you sound very uncertain about all of this. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I'm having those moments, you know. Is anything certain in this post-Trump era, even that you are working on this show? <laughs> well, I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor here at Bitch. Um, welcome to the show. So we start off each episode talking about like a fake favorite pop culture moment. Um, Sarah, what are you into right now? Okay, so for the last two weeks, I've been fluctuating between frustration and activism, like feeling like I'm going to get fired up, ready to do this, let's support each other, I'm going to work twice as hard, and absolute nihilism, like <laughs> nothing matters, why even try? Uh, it's going to be terrible. And uh, the most effective balm I have found for this nihilism is a book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. This book was originally published in 2004, but uh, it was reissued in 2016. And the day after the election, the publisher, Haymarket Books, uh, put it online for free for people to download. And I've read a couple others of Rebecca Solnit's books, including Men Explain Things to Me, which I think is the book most people know her for now. Um, I never read Hope in the Dark, but I downloaded it and started reading it. And I was immediately like, oh, my God, this is like my Bible. (laughs) It's like a a non-religious anti-capitalist Bible. And here's what she says about hope in there. So it's called Hope in the Dark. And it's kind of about the importance of having hope and the idea of embracing hope for uh, progressive change. And she says, it's important to say what hope is not. It's not the belief that everything was, is, or will be fine. The evidence is all around us of tremendous suffering and tremendous destruction. So that's what she says. But then she says to to go on to say that hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. Optimists think we'll be all fine without our involvement. Pessimists take the opposite position. Both excuse themselves from acting. Hope is the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact, are not things we can know beforehand. So that's what I've been keeping in mind, is just that we don't know how our actions are going to matter in the future, how this plays out in 10 years, 20 years, 200 years from now. 
we're, we don't know. And it's, it's useful and effective to have hope that the work that we do actually will change something somewhere down the line. I'm so glad that you're able to find comfort in not knowing because <laughs> it's it's so hard, you know. I think I think that often like we do go to a place of like um of terrible terrible things uh, being on the horizon because we can't fathom something good coming out of this, but I think that um keeping that option open is some is really important to like our own mental health. Yeah, and I mean if I go into it with the mindset of like, well, we're screwed everything's going to be terrible, then like, why try and work for change? Why even try and make things better? Why try and do anything? So trying to have some, uh, some hope, not in a kumbaya namaste, we're all one kind of way, but in the like, okay, we can, we can make history kind of way. So your pop culture fave this week is such an amazing segue into my pop culture (laughs) piece this week. Um, So right after the election happened, I decided I needed to like a really good distraction. And so I started to watch The Walking Dead. (laughs) (laughs) The AMC uh, post-apocalyptic zombie show. It's on Netflix. The first six seasons are on there. So it's been about two weeks now and I've been watching roughly like three to four episodes every day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh and I'm like I'm quote unquote live tweeting it on my Twitter <laughs> so just last night I hit like my my 100th Walking Dead tweet um but you know I I tweeted that like I wanted to submerse myself in like a a more awful terrible less hopeful fictive reality as a means of escape because then I think that it's important to have something to compare our reality to and for some Walking Dead is is so is so it's 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 not that great of a show. Like sorry for Walking Dead fans, <laughs> but the writing isn't that great, and like the art production some, leaves something to be desired with. You know, like I I really get into like little nitty gritty things like that, and like the acting the acting is some parts of the acting are really wonderful, um, but because like there are all these other parts of the show that can help me think about something else and like I'm really now I'm you know I I'm just finishing the fifth season. I'm about to start the sixth season. And my, my initial goal was to watch up until the part where I, one of the characters, the specific character, gets killed. And I don't think this is... And I'm not going to spoil it in case anybody wants to watch it. But, like, I'm watching it until this character gets killed for solidarity reasons. Um, <laughs> but now, which, <laughs> which, happens in t- which happens in this current season that's airing now. Um, but my greatest fear is that, like, I'll want to keep watching it. Because in the end, the show is awful. Like... <laughs> The story doesn't make sense. Um, the writing is kind of questionable, and I think this show also brings up like um, these questions, these big um, questions about humanity and what it means to be human and what it means to survive versus what it means to live. So, even if on the surface, you know, it, it's it's not presented that well. Um, I'm also I've also learned how to make gifts from watching the show because there's so many gifable things that apply to like the current current political socio political landscape and uh, it's it's basically for me like <laughs> I I don't even care if anybody's reading this but it's just been a like something that's um, making me feel less lonely in in a way uh, and I really appreciate the show yeah so our current social and political situation is pretty bad. 
but at least we're not in the midst of a zombie apocalypse. You know, does it make you feel positive that way? <laughs> yeah, in that very, very small way, it does. But, like, I've made it very clear to, like, my friends and family and my loved ones that, like, should we ever be in a zombie apocalypse? Like, I am not doing anything. Like, I'm just going to get bit and become a zombie and then you can kill me because this is, like, this is not good living you know <laughs> it's too difficult yeah i think i'm i think i would die in a zombie apocalypse too i think i would rather do that than um try and survive and like have to hack somebody to yeah. pieces i mean that that's that, that's like a big question that this show asks like like what is the value of life if this is how you have to live um and it asks it in all these weird bizarre ways with uh, these some poorly like sketch characters and and some not so great writing but it's asking a question that i don't think gets asked often in popular media okay for the first segment on our show we're going to talk about the ongoing activism at standing rock against the dakota access pipeline so last week around the united states of course was thanksgiving and a lot of people were drawing the connection between um, celebrating Thanksgiving and bringing attention to the ongoing activists of indigenous leaders at Standing Rock. I got the chance to actually interview somebody um, who's one of the leaders of a youth movement there. Her name is Erin Wise, um, and she's the media liaison um, for a group of young people, so people in their teens and 20s who are at Standing Rock, who are there from all over the country um, in the fight for water rights and environmental justice on indigenous lands. So I wanted to play about a minute or two of our interview. Um, I asked her here, okay, so in the news we've seen over the last week, there's been a lot of police violence against the people who are there. There's been uh, use of spraying water on people in freezing conditions, rubber bullets, tear gas, and in addition to that, just the environmental factors. This is, this is North Dakota. It's freezing cold there right now. So I asked her, like, what keeps you there? What keeps you going? The reason that the Dakota Access Pipeline is such a major fight right now is because it stands to run through the two largest rivers in the United States. Like if you if you think of the veins in your wrist and, you know, like the, the blood that flows from your heart through the rest of your body, like these are the two ventricles in our heartland. And they are putting a pipeline. They've already completed the drilling underneath the Mississippi River. And they intend to complete drilling underneath the Missouri River. And the reason this fight is so big is because there are 18 million people downstream, um, roughly, from where they put the, or where they intend to put the pipeline. It's, I think, kind of become, you know, like a, a, a welcome mat for the future. Uh, you know, Dakota Access Pipeline, Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, it's not the first time we've made a stand. But it's the first time in a long time that people have finally started paying attention to indigenous communities. And it's the first time in a long time that we've had the power to say, hey, we know that you guys haven't been paying attention to this, to us this whole time, but like we're here and we're taking back our land. We're taking back our languages. We're taking back our sacred resources because you guys have taken over them for so long and you essentially fucked it up. Like you, you, you're not allowed to be in charge anymore. So the thing that really stood out to me there, Amy, was that she was talking about how, you know, indigenous activists have been protesting for a long time uh, about people taking away their lands, about colonialism, about environmental justice. But this is the first time in maybe a generation that non-indigenous people have been paying attention, that this has actually been front page news. And that's something I think has been really notable. While in the beginning of 
um, the camp at Standing Rock and the activism around it, there wasn't a lot of media attention there. Like it was really underlooked. In the last few weeks, I feel like it's something a lot of people have been talking about. It's been staying in the public light. There's been a lot of like art and activism around it. This is a, this is a time when like people are actually paying attention to what uh, indigenous leaders are saying about land rights and environmental justice. Yeah, and uh, I mean, this we have talked about this before, and uh, in large part, this is due to the fact that um, like mainstream media outlets don't want to cover this, uh, and you know we can be really like cynical or realistic, and maybe you know and know that the reason why they're not covering this is because this is tied to like big oil and big oil funds, big media and funds everything else. So it's, this is really tied to capitalism and how that machine works and how it controls the information that we get. Um, and I think that one of the things about this. Um, like what's happening at Standing Rock is that for many of us who are like watching from the outside in, um, we we can feel like support for the movement, but it's difficult to know like what we can do to help it. And um, one of the people that I've been following on Twitter, her name is Dr. Adrienne Keen. Um, she is a native professor and she works in higher ed, but she's been giving some really good information about like how people who are not there can help and contribute to either like spreading the message or to just donate money. Um, she has this website. It is nativeappropriations.com. I love that site. She does such good work. She's been writing about this stuff for years. This is interesting because in one of her recent posts, she goes, you know, she's been writing about um, Native issues for a long time, but she recognizes that she hasn't actually been writing about what's happening um, at Standing Rock for a while, even though she's been tweeting about it a lot. And in this piece, um, she says that, you know, one of the reasons why she hasn't written like a full like essay or examination about it is because it hits so close to home. And it's actually like um, the all of the issues and work that she's been uh, doing is like collating into one movement, and she didn't really know how to like put it into words. But in this recent piece that she put out, where she gives um, options and solutions and resources for people who want to help to like donate money to show up at the camp to how to do it in a sensible way, that I think that you know now that we're getting the information, this is this is our chance um, as people who are also squatting on stolen stolen land to an extent, like for us to contribute to this movement, where these people are just trying to protect their their water source like and they're they're doing it in a non-violent le- way even though violence is being used towards them to stand to stand firm and know that like we're supporting a, a movement that speaks much more than just what um what's happening at standing rock and what their water supply means you know it's cause, like this is also tied to like black lives matter this is also tied to um police brutality this is tied to so many other larger movements and we need to recognize that yeah i mean I'm curious about what what Adrian Keen suggested for what uh, we can do to effectively support people at Standing Rock. I mean, of course, there's giving money. And last week, I looked up the average cost of a Thanksgiving dinner, uh, which this year, because they like do these analyses of that every year, this year was forty nine dollars and eighty seven cents. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna donate that much to Standing Rock because as I'm eating Thanksgiving dinner, I want to not be forgetting about. Uh, like indigenous rights and people who are working for that. So I donated forty nine eighty seven to Standing Rock last week. But what else does Adrian say that we can do? What's, what's some good advice? Yeah. So on this post on a nativeappropriations.com, it's titled uh, hashtag no dapple updates resources and post some of the post some of the post some of the post. Um, she gives you places where you can donate money. And the top one is standingrock.org. Um, and this is 
because the Standing Rock tribe is the one who funds it and they're the ones who are paying for like the porta potties, um, the trash pickup and other infrastructure that's in, at the camp. And there, um, there's also links to like the Sacred Stone Camp Legal Defense Fund for people who need and need help, and need help with that. Um, but she also mentions that like, you know, you can organize or attend uh, solidarity rallies to show up like physically to show that like you are in support of this and to, you know, I, I think that when you when you attend or, or and or organize rallies like this, you're showing people in other parts of the country that like I live in this city that's really far away from this location geographically, but my heart is there and I'm showing support for it. Um, she also suggests like um, hosting a teach-in on your campus or your community about uh, with the Standing Rock syllabus, you know, to examine what are all the issues that are tied to this movement. And it, I mean, like there, I think this this is a list about a dozen things that you can do. Um, some of them, you know, are like bigger picture things like call the White House or uh, divest your funds from 30 banks that are funding the pipeline. Like that sounds, that sounds like a hard thing to do because like I had said earlier, like this is so tied to um, how capitalism works. And I, I think that the vast majority of us who don't have our money in like local credit unions, um, we have our money sitting in banks that are funding this pipeline. And when our money sit in banks, like that those banks use our money to lend out and they charge interest and they make money off of our money. You know, so if if movements like this were had gained enough strength and traction, like we could really show these corporations that we're serious about uh, who we stand with and and like whose lands we want to protect. Yeah, I think that's like that's that's such a key point about I guess I've, I've, I get kind of dispirited thinking like, well, I can't do everything, you know, like. I can't, like, how can we stop this? It's so big. It's like the Army Corps of Engineers. It's banks. It's history. It's white supremacy. Like, how can you do anything? But, like, literally doing anything helps a bit. And especially doing stuff locally from a media perspective standpoint. I think about, I used to be a reporter, and I'd always be looking for ways to report on national issues locally. And it's pretty hard to make that connection. But if somebody organizes a protest in your town or a rally in your town, suddenly there's a reason for like the local newspaper to write about the Dakota Access Pipeline. So that can be a real strategy for keeping this issue in the headlines around the country. Um, yeah, it's dispiriting, but you know, I, I do feel like I'm, I've, been taking, I've been taking some hope from hope in the dark. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm thinking like, just because we can't solve everything doesn't mean we shouldn't work, to tr work a little bit to try and change what we can. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is how the media is talking about Trump and his supporters or, you know, people in his uh, small sphere of smallness I, <laughs> with big impact. <laughs> smallness? <laughs> with makes, large. <laughs> that makes it sound like they all have small hands in his, in his small sphere of tiny hands individuals. <laughs> you know what, like... Like, all I have now is my pettiness, like, to be honest. So, <laughs> like, I'm don't gonna, take that away from me. <laughs> yeah. I'm harnessing my pettiness for power, right? I, I'm, I'm, I, that should be a hashtag I start. That should be a t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a t-shirt to me. Harness my pettiness for power. Because uh, that is really one of my biggest skills. Like, I, I think it should just be my resume. It's just to say hashtag petty. Um, so the thing that I wanted to get into is, like, you know, I, a lot of things have been floating around talking about how the media is and isn't talking about Trump and his supporters. And one of the most disconcerting and disheartening things is um, 
A couple of headlines and articles that have come out recently from Mother Jones. You know, Mother Jones has been a publication that we've been revering as um, the place for progressive news and progressive, very progressive takes um, on issues. But uh, there have been a couple of really troubling headlines that they put out. Like recently, um, in a couple weeks ago, there was a headline that said, Meet the Dapper White Nationalist Riding the Trump Wave. And it featured this picture of this guy, his name is Richard Spencer, and he's an alt-right, like one of the leaders in the alt-right movement, um, looking quite dapper, you know, <laughs> in an elevator with this nice haircut. But there was criticism at that time being like, why are we talking about white supremacists using phrases like um, how they're handsome and like uh, talking about their good looks when they're hate mongers? And then just really recently, um, there was another piece by a writer named Kevin Drum, that was on Mother Jones, and the headline for that piece was, let's please kill off the, quote, white supremacy fad. And Whoa. the, yeah, the, <laughs> the gist of this piece is that he's saying that um, we're using the phrase white supremacy and white supremacy too much, and we're using it incorrectly, in fact. Uh, this piece has so many issues of it. Like, uh, I mean, like, obviously this guy's a white male and so he's he's misunderstanding how we're using it appropriately in fact there's this part of this piece where he says quote i don't know the answer to why um we're using white supremacy in place of racism um, i don't know i don't know the answer but my guess is that it started with tanahasi coates who began using it frequently a little while ago anyone have a better idea? Like, this is literally in a piece in Mother Jones, and this really speaks to, like, the cluelessness of, number one, like, uh, editorial staff who let this slide. Like, the usage of calling shit out as being white supremacist did not start with Ta-Nehisi Coates. It started with white supremacy, and we're just calling things out with the correct label, because white supremacy is not a stand-in for racism. Uh, white supremacy, you know, is talking about how systems work to, to highlight and, um, and center whiteness, and it, 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 it promotes whiteness as being the best, you know? It, it, it's not the same as, like, talking about uh, very specific uh, racist policies or ideologies that um, serve to oppress like very specific communities. But I mean, this piece is, first of all, it's terribly written. And so, I mean, there's that part of me as an editor that's just like, why was this even published? But secondly, the ideas of it are so antiquated and really speaks to how um, some liberal white folks just don't get it. You know, because I think that for liberal right people, when when they're like, why are we talking about white supremacy? It's because they're not engaging in how how they benefit from white supremacy. So when they are questioning the usage of a phrase like that or an ideology like that, um, they're not understanding that their questioning of it is actually an outgrowth of white supremacy because their point of view is so centered on not seeing their own whiteness which is um, a tool of white supremacy, that they don't understand why speaking about it in this way is fucked up. Um, and, and I think that the reason why I'm talking about Mother Jones in particular is because this is supposed to be like the publication of record for the progressive movement, and they're already creating these like huge gaffes um, and in normalizing white supremacy, and in normalizing white supremacists. Uh, you know, like, I'm so tired of news organizations calling this movement alt-right, because it's not alt-right, they're neo-Nazis, and we need to call them who they are. I mean, to the point where, like, that, that dapper 
white supremacist, white nationalist that I mentioned earlier, which Richard Spencer, he was at a like a, an alt-right conference in Washington, D.C. recently where this video of him, you know, saying, um, uh, hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory. And they are legit throwing like the like the Nazi salute during this this conference like there there's no way of talking about these people without calling them Nazis and if we don't call them Nazis then we're you know we're on this road of like committing the same sins and this the the same uh terrible fucking shit that happened um in other fascist regimes yeah well I think what this all ties into is that the language that we use matters obviously right and the people on the right have figured out how to very nicely brand themselves as not being white supremacists, to brand themselves as saying, we're just fiery, right-wing, conservative individuals. And the label for that is alt-right. You know, I feel like there are way fewer people who would sign off on a movement or join up or read articles if they were labeled as like, this article is written by white supremacists, because that's a word that we've like grown up learning and thinking about and associating um, with a racist history and present. So rebranding it as alt-right is a really effective move. And there was an article that was, I think, really good about this in the New York Times this last week called, it was by Kelly J. Baker, and it's called White Collar Supremacy. Did you read that? I, I liked it. No. Uh, it's about Richard B. Spencer, the uh, dapper white supremacist. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, he... Uh, it, it, talks, it starts right off the bat talking about how he's one of the main figures of the alt-right movement and who supports the creation of a, quote, an ethno-state for white Europeans and a, quote, peaceful ethnic cleansing. Um, and he's been, you know, uh, called out by the Southern Poverty Law Center. But that in the way that he dresses and the way that he looks, he looks more like a hipster academic than a Klansman, that he has sunglasses and a black T-shirt. Um, and Kelly J. Baker, the writer of this article, said that this is, this is part of an image makeover for uh, white supremacists. This is, this is a carefully calculated um, like image thing that they're doing to try and see themselves as clean-cut individuals who are removed from you know, the, the history of white supremacy. Instead of being associated with the KKK, they want to be seen as like clean-cut business people. But that actually, as Kelly J. Baker points out, there have always been efforts to dress up white supremacy in ideas and middle-class respectability. Well, not always, but since like the late 19th century. Um, back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, some of the most, the strongest and most famous proponents of racist ideas were people who styled themselves as scientists, as eugenicists, who were arguing for racial segregation and separation um, on a scientific basis, saying that you know, humans were just genetically different. Some races were better than other races because of their biology. This isn't, you know, backwater racism. This is science. And I think you really see the same thing with the way that the, you know, white supremacists now are trying to are trying to dress themselves up as saying, you know, we're not backwoods racists. You know, we're we're business people. We're logical, practical individuals. Yeah, and and I think that you know, they've done a really good job at this. And it's it's amazing because um they're this this ability to hide um white like like serious like neo-Nazi white supremacy behind aesthetics is so effective. And there's there's that piece of like them doing that work, right? But then there's also the piece of like like Trump not ever 
publicly disavowing them. And this happened, you know, while he was campaigning when there was a news reporter who asked him about like, so what do you feel about um, like David Duke of the KKK, like um, putting his support behind you? And his response was famously like, well, actually, I don't know. I don't know who that guy is. Like, let me let me research more about him before I, I can I can make a comment about it. Like, you don't want me to comment on this without knowing who this guy is in this organization is, right? Like, who doesn't know who the KKK is? Like, you know, <laughs> like, so I, I think, I think, you know, and, and, and when, and when do we ever hear Trump saying, well, let me, let me get back to you on that. Never. You know, this is a guy who, who knows what he's, he's doing. And, you know, the, the fact that, um, that white supremacists are quote like riding the, the Trump train on this with Trump not ever acknowledging their support to like to the rest of us while winking and nodding at them showing saying that like I really do appreciate support you know th- this is like such a dangerous game that like we're we're watching being played out and like and we're all the pawns in this game because it's gonna affect us and so you know there's just a couple more months before he's actually legitimately in the office and i uh, like i really fear for what's going to happen um when you know when these when when he starts to actually incorporate these folks in his cabinet yeah, I mean, that's, that's something we talked about a lot when he was on the campaign trail and right after his election, too, was, like, the way people would talk about him as controversial or as an outsider rather than saying, oh, his policies are racist. The word you're looking for is racist um, or Islamophobic. You know, the, the word you're not looking for is, like, you know, some people are critical of him. Yeah. Yeah, so I just think, I think it's important to to not be coded about this. I think it's important to say like, no, like these people are white supremacists. Trump is pushing really racist and Islamophobic ideas. And to not like, to not buy into this restyling of white supremacy is like hipster alt-right. You know, actually, this sounds so terrible though, but like I'm getting to the point where saying because you know there was a point in my life where like calling shit out as white supremacist like felt like a a a really heavy thing to do like i'm really saying this is like white supremacy happening you know because like white supremacy had really terrible uh, connotations connected to it but it's getting to the point now where just in the last few weeks where i'm like i don't think even calling shit out as white supremacist is enough now like i think we just need to call shit like people and movements as like nazis and nazism because um, I think we need to use the right words to call out how dangerous this shit is. And these folks are talking about, um, like, Nazi practices. You know, like, ethnic cleansing, there's no other word for that. I guess um, I always feel I feel hesitant about doing that because there's so many times when, there are, when people devolve into Nazi metaphors or comparing stuff to Nazism or comparing stuff to the Holocaust, when I feel like that's, that's its own entity that needs to be uh like seen as 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 this distinct thing you know these people who are calling back now to hitler and to and to neo and and are neo-nazis i think it's fine to call them neo-nazis i'm just really i don't want to compare like trump's policies to the holocaust or fall down that spiral of um of hyperbole that so often happens in in political conversation does that make sense yeah that makes sense but i'm just saying that like it feels like the words that we're using now are failing us, you know, to talk about the urgency of who these people are. Because, but outside of calling them outright, people have been calling them white supremacists, right? 
but it still isn't getting the message across somehow. And I think that the reason why um, a term like neo-Nazi has the weight that it has is because it has the history and like it, it is it, because it is tied to such a horrific thing um, that it can I think that for some people, like, they need to hear that and, and like, to recognize the ties to a really his historical, um, awful, fucked up event to know that, like, this is how dangerous these folks can be as well. Mm -hmm. Unless we can think of a new word. Like, like I, I, I do foresee in the future that, like, Trump and, and like, white supremacy will become synonymous in some way. Yeah. But obviously, for a vast majority of people, the word Trump doesn't have that feeling yet. Yeah, I'm just I'm always like like wary of comparing things to comparing things and people to Nazis who are not actually literally Nazis, um, especially because Nazi gets thrown around so much from soup Nazi to like feminazi that I feel like adding that that's like a that's like a tactic that people use to like make something edgier or seem like a really big deal. But now we're entering this. But but I think I'm feeling conflicted right now because we're entering this era where there are reality TV stars like Tila Tequila doing the Heil Hitler sign, like drawing inspiration from Nazis. So like, is, should we call her a neo-Nazi? Like what, right. is the, I mean... what is the language? Like, usually I'd be like, no, 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 no. Like that's way too hyperbolic. That's drawing an, an analogy that I don't think is correct or ethical to draw because of the historical weight and impact of uh, the Nazis and the Holocaust. But so what do you call the people who are now uh, acting a lot like, uh, who are, like, so what, what do you call the people who seem to be drawing their ideological inspiration from the Nazis and doing Heil Hitler salutes? Right, I mean, like, like Richard Spencer, this guy, he's, he's literally, like, asking us to view them as Nazis. Like, they, they are the ones that are using, um, like, Nazi imagery to reinforce ideas that, you know, that he feels. Um, he's a literal Nazi. So I don't think it's a misnomer to call him that because he wants, I mean, he, he's, he's perpetuating these ideas and these notions and he's literally like leading, giving speeches and leading conferences where they are giving the Nazi salute and they are, he's literally uttered the words, hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory. Like, you know, if, if we don't call him a Nazi, then who's a fucking Nazi? I, I totally hear what you're saying. Like you don't want to make false equivalencies mm -hmm. because it dimin it diminishes a historical, um, a historical event, and it can also diminish like what's happening in the present. But when um, these white supremacists are literally hearkening back to those events because they're trying to 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 not just um, give a message to their communities because he's giving a message to their communities like we're going to continue this tradition but he's also giving a message to us too people who are not in his community like you better fucking watch out because do you remember what happened then yeah I mean there was just this video that came out about Richard Spencer where he's he says hail Trump as the crowd flashed the Nazi salute um, and then he quoted some Nazi propaganda so <laughs> you're, I think you're right that if he's not a Nazi who is who is a Nazi, and that I just I just want to be careful with the with with the use of that term to make sure that we're not overblowing it, but also or you know tying it to people who it shouldn't be tied to, but also you know this guy's saying hail Trump and doing the Nazi salute. I mean, all that's missing from his dapper fitted suit is an armband with the fucking swastika on it. 
our history books from our childhoods was already like a skewed white supremacist like novel, but <laughs> but it's really it's really disheartening and scary to see that like wow this is like our history books coming back to life to an extent. All right, so we're gonna close out our sad show. <laughs> Our sad yet hopeful show with uh, one thing we're watching, reading, and listening to. Um, so I want to talk about the show that I just like happened to uh, see on Netflix. This is before I uh, went into my Walking Dead black hole. Um, I was just scrolling Netflix and then I saw the show. It's called Chewing Gum and I was like, oh, it's got like a young black woman protagonist. Let me check this out. And it was the best decision I've made uh, in this past month. <laughs> uh, it's such a great show. Um, it was a show that was originally aired in the UK and it stars this comedian. Her name is Michaela Cole. She's, she's playing this character who's named Tracy and uh, she's like a young woman. I think she's, I think the character's probably like in her early 20s, but she's like a really awkward, horny young woman who's like unapologetic and unashamed of her female sexuality, except for the fact that um, she lives with her mother and her sister and they're both super religious. And the show is really interesting because it gives you this um, different perspective of like life in London. And she lives in what's called an estate. And I think in the in the U.S. here, we would call them like a housing project and like kind of like the life in the estates. And she ends up uh, like hooking up with uh, somebody else who lives in the estate and he who is an an equally awkward guy and who's a quote poet um but you know like they are having like this dance of like her trying to desperately lose her virginity and like him being weird and then like her best friend who also lives in the state and her name her the woman who plays her her name is danielle walters and she's great in the show too but it's so funny and uh michaela cole actually won a won a bafta for performance in this series and i have a pro tip while you're watching this and which i am actually doing even while i'm watching walking dead while i'm watching lots of stuff on netflix is to put the captions on because <laughs> sometimes like i don't get a lot sometimes i'll miss stuff because they're, they have an english accent or because they're just talking real fast and also maybe because my sound system's not that good so i'm not hearing everything so uh watch things with the captions on um it makes it better and also like if you feel like making a gif out of it you can see how it'll work <laughs> what's the name of the show again what's the it's called chewing gum and it's on netflix you can watch the entire first season i hope a second season comes out because i am all in with tracy like she's so funny and she's so personable and she's she's so a part of like i think everybody is her to an extent like how desperately she wants something and how awkwardly she goes after it that's cool i've never heard of that series before i'm gonna look it up um, my pick for this week is a book that I read that's called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, and it's by Blair <laughs> Braverman. And this is a book, um, Blair was interviewed in the Chaos issue of Bitch, the current print issue of Bitch, uh, by the writer Sarah Marshall, which is uh, kind of where I first heard about this book, uh, was with that interview. And uh, it sounded really interesting. Blair Braverman is uh, a, a sled dog racer who spent some of her youth in Norway and now lives in northern Wisconsin, um, and it, this is kind of, like, styled as, like, a memoir of a sled dog racer, and I was like, eh, you know, like, every, there's, like, all these memoirs that are, like, I spent a year just eating cheese, or, like, I spent, I spent a year diving, and this one's, and I thought that this would be one of those that's just, like, yep, here's my life as a sled dog racer, but instead, this book is great. It's so powerful, and it's about, it's really about dealing with violence as a woman, living in 
regions that uh, that are very male dominated, working in an industry that's very male dominated, and just the ever present fear of sexual violence and the ever present feeling of feeling um, like marked for your gender and uh, and labeled as other because of it. And she beautifully and brilliantly expresses just this kind of like low hum of fear about violence that that runs through her life and that I think almost all women have experienced in their lives um, and how she deals with it, how she thinks about it and how she really comes to feel powerful despite that hum of fear. So check it out. It's called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube by Blair Braverman. Rad. All right. So the song I want to talk about is by a musician. Her name is Melina Duterte and she performs as Jay Som. And, um, Oh, I'm so glad you chose it. I was going to choose this for next week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I chose it. (laughs) She toured with Mitsuki and Japanese Breakfast earlier this year, um, who are both artists who I really, really enjoy. Um, And so I actually, I think her sound is a lot like, um, like Built to Spill meets Mitsuki. So it's really like reminiscent of like the buzzy indie rock from late 90s. And um there was a, actually an interview with her on bitchmedia.org by writer Marissa Luroso, and the piece is called uh, Bedroom Dream Band. JSOM talks about producing her new album by herself. And the song I wanted to play is called Peach Boy, and it is from the new album Turn Into. And this is JSOM. I'm so glad you liked uh, this music because I like it too. Yeah. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, thanks, Amy. Bye. listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS.